Amen. Thank you. Yeah, let's give a round of applause to all of these amazing people. And we, uh, we are so thankful and for what y'all do. And, uh, and as a church, we are committed to investing in the next generation. But we also realize that means investing in the people that on a daily basis invest in the next generation. So all of you educators, we say if there's any needs that you have, anything that comes up, uh, concerns or ways that we can support you, resource you, encourage you, please let us know. That is one of uh, the founding commitments of this, this church, of the Grace Churches. And, and we, I know it's a little embarrassing to force you to come up and uh, stand in front, even though you stand in front of people every day, but it's a little different to put a mic in your hand. But the reason we do that also is for connections. There's some people in here that may need to know one of you. And, uh, and for me personally, this is many years ago, uh, one of our daughters was dealing with um, some speech issues. And uh, we were in a, a new school district that we didn't know um, at Far Elementary School, or about to go to school there. And uh, this was at Grace Neville, had all the teachers get up. And we've been praying, God, will you just bring the right person for our daughter? And, uh, and sure enough, one of the last people to stand up uh, I'm Miss Hawkins, and I, I uh, am a speech therapist at Far Elementary School. And they're like, all right, Lord, there's our answer. So I don't, who knows who needs to know and, and be praying for you, but vice versa, uh, people that you uh, may be a blessing to that are sitting in this room. So thank you all for doing that. Well, we're going to be in the book of Jonah today. And so if you have a Bible, go on and turn to the book of Jonah it's a tiny little book. You kind of go to the middle and start scrolling. If you get to Matthew, you've gone too far. If you need a Bible, we have plenty of them. Just slip up a hand. We'll get a Bible in your hand so you can follow along uh, with us. Today, we're actually concluding our summer series as we've been going through the minor prophets and, and, uh, and looking at how God spoke through these people to call his people back to himself, to reveal his heart. His desire, the calling of God's people, and to remind them who they are and who they belong to, but also some hard words of judgment and conviction that uh, when we wander away from God, he allows us to experience the consequences of those decisions. And, and so God's people were, in so many different ways, facing the judgment for their own, uh, for their own actions or inaction at, in t- at times. But we also have framed this whole series through the lens of Jesus, who, when he was asked, Hey, teacher, rabbi, what do you say is the greatest command? Remember, what did Jesus answer? To love the Lord your God with all your being, all your, your heart, your mind, your strength. Then he goes on to say, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But then he makes this amazing statement. He says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So in other words, as we're reading these minor prophets, we're reading them through this lens that somehow what God is doing through even some of the the hardest and seemingly harshest words that God speaks through his prophets, God is drawing us back to loving him and to loving our neighbor. That the lens we read these prophets through is how is God increasing our love for the Lord and our love for those around us. And so we end with the book of Jonah, a familiar story. Uh, we began it last week. We're actually going to spend two weeks here, as I said uh, last week, in Jonah. We only got through the first chapter. 
Remember Jonah, uh, the prophet, was serving in the king's court, Jeroboam II, who we know was an evil king. And yet at the same time that there's this moral depravity in the land, the people want going farther and farther away from God was also a time of economic prosperity. And sometimes, you know, we can get this idea that, you know, if, if things, if, if people's hearts are bad, then things are going to go bad for them. But if people's hearts are good, then things are going to go well. But when we actually look at the world, it doesn't play out that way often, does it? And here we see that. We see this time of economic expansion, but also deep moral depravity. And yet uh, Jonah is positioned there in the king's court, prophesying that this is going to be a time that Israel is going to grow. While at the same time, other prophets, Amos, Hosea, are calling out to the same people at the same time, saying, your hearts are far from me. Judgment is coming. Return to me, faithless Israel. And yet Amos, it seems to be in the mix there. That's not the message he's preaching. But God brings a word to to Jonah and, uh, and actually moves him out of this comfortable place in the king's palace and gives him this command. To go to the very belly of the beast, to the, to the seat of power of his greatest enemies, to a, a foreign land with a different religion and a different language, God moves Jonah from the king's palace and tells him to go to Nineveh. Now, what does Jonah do? He goes obediently to follow God, right? No, he does what so many of us do when God gives us an uncomfortable and challenging word. When God is, is asks us to cross boundaries that we're familiar with. When God tells us to go be with people that don't like, look like us or think like us or agree with us. When, when God is pushing us out into the uncomfortable, we can so often go, uh, no, thank you, God, I'm going to go over here. I'm just going to put my head under my pillow and go to sleep and wake me up when this is all over. And we see Jonah get on board a boat to try to go as far away from God. You can throw that map up there. We know Nineveh to the east. Jonah gets on a a boat and heads as far away as he possibly can in the opposite direction. But God, we know, confronts Jonah with a storm. Throws an obstacle in his path that forces him to come to reality, to the reality of his own disobedience. Now, if you were a part of the Jewish community reading this book, the prophet Jonah, and you got this far in the story, you would totally identify and agree with Jonah's move. For for them, at this point, uh, Assyria, Nineveh being one of the the power cities of Assyria, is is an up-and-coming empire. But they're about to be the empire that comes in and wipes out the northern tribes of Israel. Carts off the people into exile. That's coming on the horizon. And and so if you're reading this book after the, the decimation of the Assyrians, and you hear God calling Jonah to go to Nineveh, it'd be like a Holocaust survivor being told to go to Germany. I mean, it's, this is somebody, a Rwandan, being told to go to Uganda. I mean, this, this is a people that wipes your people off the map. And so as soon as God mentions Nineveh, what you are thinking is, these are the most despicable, hateful, evil, violent, wicked people on the planet. God, surely the only message you would have for them is doom and destruction. 
Of course Jonah doesn't want to go there. We can understand it. But God stops Jonah in his tracks. We know that that boat is about to be swamped, and they're, they're trying to do everything they can to, to stay afloat, throwing everything overboard. Finally, they, they, they re, it's revealed that Jonah is actually the problem on the boat. And Jonah gets tossed. And as Jonah sinks into the sea, this is chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, this is one of those, like, great uh, kid stories, right? Jonah and the belly of the whale. And we can almost imagine this sort of like comfortable picnic. In fact, there's some storybooks. You can throw that, that picture up there of, uh, you know, Jonah and the whale or in the, in the whale's mouth getting swallowed by the great fish. And you set up camp and you have your little fire and cook your s'mores for the three days in the belly of the beast. Well, that wouldn't have been the reality. On the other hand, we, we can, you know, have this sort of, you know, magical mythology in our mind. And the other is that this is just a, just a, a made-up story. There's no way that, that God could have done something like this. It's actually interesting that there are uh, cases of, of people, fishermen uh, and, uh, and, and crabbers and, uh, and scuba divers that have been actually swallowed or grabbed a hold of by by uh, large whales. And so I actually have a picture here. This is, I think, amazing. If you can see the, the blue flippers and the green belt, that's actually a, oh, just so you know, he does survive this. I didn't just throw up a picture of somebody getting chomped in half by a whale. <laughs> but that's just recently. Uh, a scuba diver was scooped up by a, a whale, and he was in, not for three days, but for about 30 seconds. Um, but there are uh, accounts. So it's not un, unheard of. There's still the miracle of how, I mean, there's not to take away that there is a miracle. God appointing this fish, one, to be in the location that the fish was located, but also the fact that Jonah survived for three days in the mouth or in the belly, or in the esophagus, whichever part of the body Jonah was actually stuck in. But what I want you to get is this would not have been a comfortable position for Jonah. He wasn't camped out. He would have been squeezed in tight, his life despairing, the breath coming out of his lungs in total darkness for those three days. And in that place, he cries out to God. In Jonah chapter 2, we get this prayer of, of Jonah calling to God from the belly of the fish. I called out to the Lord out of, my out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. You can imagine this, this stormy, shaky, crushing movement. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. And we see in Jonah this holy turning. It is beginning to recognize how far he has run. Yet I shall again look upon your holy tem temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountain. I love that phrase, thinking about the roots of the mountain. We may word that is. Jonah hits rock bottom. Have you ever been at the roots of the mountain? 
where it feels like your whole life, you couldn't get any lower, where it feels like you're being so crushed and, and, and so overwhelmed, where everything feels so dark that there's no hope. You've absolutely been brought to the pits. But when my life was fainting away, and you can just imagine Jonah gasping for breath, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple, a sense of expectation that God could still hear him. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There's a challenge in this prayer of Jonah for us. Remember we said Jonah's not meant, even though there's clear irony and satire in the story, Jonah's not meant to be a mockery. Jonah's also obviously not a model in so many ways. But Jonah's meant to be a mirror. Where do we see ourselves in this reluctant prophet? And so often, what do we do when it feels like the world is crushing us? When the weight of our circumstances, in that darkness, it feels like we're hitting a rock bottom. And what is that expectant cry that God could meet us even there? In verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Even that language, I mean, this is a mess. There's nothing clean about this story. Jonah doesn't come out with his, you know, clothes pressed and ironed and, you know, his hair fixed and his makeup done right. But, I mean, he's... he's vomited onto the beach all the mess of the things that he has just sat in for three days around him but in that place the Lord's deliverance confronted with his own the, the mess of his own making the word of the Lord comes again to Jonah a second time saying interestingly the exact same thing God said the first time Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So many times when in disobedience, you know, we, we, we put our head under the pillow, we wake up to our reality, how far we have run away from God, whether it's because of the storms that we face or, or, or because of the cries of the people around us that we're hurting by our own disobedience. And so often in that place of, of waking up, we kind of just don't want to be found out. It's like, if I could just, okay, I messed up, God, but if we could just move forward and just pretend that that never happened. But so often when God speaks into our lives, he continues to speak. And so many times when we feel stuck, the question we need to ask is, what's the last clear thing you heard from God? What's the last thing God told you to do that maybe you have not done? What's the last thing that God told you to stop doing that maybe you're still kind of, you know, sneaking away at? What's the last thing we heard? Because so often we're stuck because we want God to just get rid of that last word. And God's going, no, no, no I'm going to keep you right here. And you're going to be surrounded in, in, in the vomit of your own mess. But I'm going to keep you right here because there's something I'm wanting to do. And so he speaks this word, and finally, we get Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord, he did what God said. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. In other words, it takes three days to go throughout this giant, mighty city. So Jonah began to go into the city, going about a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
So Jonah goes, but the sense that we get, even in Jonah's obedience, is that it's kind of a half-hearted effort. Have you ever been there? Where you're like, fine, God, I'll do what you say. I'm not going to be happy about it. I'm going to give it just enough. I mean, I showed up. Anybody half-hearted obeyed God? And we get this in, in two different ways here with Jonah. One is, this is a, a city that takes three days to, gather, to get around, and Jonah goes one day. Well, at least I'm there. I haven't gone through the whole city like, like God told me to, but, you know, I showed up, I go a day in, and then he preaches the most half-hearted sermon of his entire life. It's actually in the Hebrew a five-word sermon. Our English translates it a little bit longer, but literally in, in the Hebrew is just simply, yet 40 days Nineveh overthrown. Ugh. Yet 40 days Nineveh overthrown. No one here cares. These are awful people anyway. They don't even speak my language. But what happens? I mean, this is amazing. The, the, the most pathetic attempt on the prophet to actually obey God. And what do we get? Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They responded. They responded to the half-hearted efforts of Jonah's prophetic message. Now, the irony of this is that, like I said, Jonah was at the same time that Hosea and Amos were giving brilliant, beautiful, powerful, heart-wrenching metaphors to the people of God, to the Israelites, to return to God. And it fell on deaf ears. They were marrying. Hosea marries a woman that's going to commit adultery as a, as a sign and a symbol of Israel's unfaithfulness. Amos using all of the language of agriculture to, to, to point out the injustice of the land. All of the things that, that they're using to do everything they can to get it. You've gone far away. God is calling you back. But there's hope for redemption. And Jonah's own people don't respond. And here, in the most wicked place that you can imagine, or that Jonah could possibly imagine on the planet, with a half-hearted, five-word sermon still, still smelling like fish breath, going one day into a city that takes three days to go across, and the entire city responds. Not just this, but as we go on, finally, the, the, the people are crying out to repent, to return to God. The word ma makes its way up into the very palace to the king, and the king sends a decree that says that stop what you're doing. Stop the wickedness and the violence of the land. We will fast. Don't eat or drink. Clothe yourself with sackcloth. Humble yourselves, and maybe God will relent. From the, the places of power to the lowest people in the land— the Ninevites responded to God's word. The king says, even your animals need to repent. And so you can imagine Jonah with so much success. I mean, he didn't even hardly try. And the city is breaking out in revival to return to God or to come to God. Many for the first time. And so you can imagine Jonah's response, right? I mean, I'm sure he's like, 
you know, high-fiving and writing support letters home to talk about all of the conversions and all of the excitement and salvations and baptisms and taking pictures of, of the repentance of the, and sackcloth and ashes, telling his mom how amazing he, of a job he did. No. That's not his response, is it? What does Jonah do when his enemies turn to God? to be saved verse 10 when God saw or 310 when God saw what they did how they turned from their evil way God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it that God held back in response to their repentance but chapter 4 but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. The, the words there actually is that it was evil to Jonah with a great evil. It's the same word evil there that, that of uh, when it says displeased exceedingly and whatever your translation is as when uh, in chapter 1 when it says that when God says their evil has risen up before me talking about the Ninevites and here Jonah's talking about God's uh, redemption is evil in his sight not just evil but exceedingly evil God how could you have mercy on my enemies do you not know who these people are do you not know what they've done do you not know how how wicked their lives are they should be destroyed God, this is an evil thing that you are doing. That word for anger is a word chara. It means to be, to be burning with anger. It's actually a different word than what it, when the Bible talks about God's anger or God's wrath, which is a righteous, a holy anger. And it comes from the, 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 the legitimate brokenness and wrong of the world. This is a, a resentful, burning anger. Have you had that kind of anger in your belly? That burning, smoldering anger that's just right there underneath the surface and one wrong look or one wrong word will set you off. And that's where Jonah is with God. And his second prayer. And he prayed to the Lord. So at least he turned to God in his anger here. But with accusation. Oh, Lord, is it not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, as if that's a bad thing, right? And relenting from disaster. Therefore, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's a little bit of a drama queen. But what's happening here? Jonah's honest with God. I didn't go because I knew what kind of God you are. The problem is that he knows in his head what kind of God God is, but he doesn't actually know this God. In other words, I didn't want these people to repent and be spared. 
I wanted them to be judged for their sins. You know, have you ever uh, been watching a movie and there's a, a bad guy that the whole time you're just waiting for him to, to get his due? And finally, just that sense of like satisfaction when everything turns on him. Especially when like the trap that he's laid gets sprung against him. You're like, yes, justice. And this is Jonah's sense. He's looking at the Ninevites and, and the wickedness and the evil. And he's like, no, I wanted justice, God. This is not justice as I define justice. I wanted them to get what I think they deserve. And when he's confronted with God's mercy in a way that he didn't want God's mercy, he basically says, I don't know that I can live with that kind of reality. It's better for me to die than to live. And we said Jonah's a mirror. So how many of us know ideas about God's grace and mercy, but deep down we don't really agree with it. I mean, how many of us know that it's right to love our enemies, but we still don't really love our enemies? How many of us know that we ought to be a people who forgive and then forgive again, and even forgive up to 70 times seven times, and yet we still hold on to that resentment and bitterness. I mean, how many of us acknowledge that, that vengeance is not ours, it belongs to the Lord, and yet we still want to help God out a little bit? I mean, we know this, right? I mean, we can identify with Jonah. We, it's before we throw any stones, we, we can see this in ourselves. And Jonah's theology, it, it's falling apart. I mean, he's calling the work of God evil. And the language he even uses against God, I mean, the story is, is coming from is Exodus, even right there in your Bible next to it, Exodus 32 to 34. It's the story of Moses when he gets God's word, goes up on the mountain. He, while he's on the mountain, word comes to him, or God tells him, the people have, have made a golden calf in my absence. My I'm going to smite them in my wrath. This is too much. And Moses pleads on behalf of his people, God, please have mercy. He comes back down off the mountain, and God relents from that disaster. And Moses says, God, will you give me a glimpse of who you are? Who are you, God? And God allows his glory to pass in front of Moses, and as his glory passes, he calls out his name, Yahweh, the Lord. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That God's mercy isn't just something that he does, it is who he is. And God replies to Jonah, Do you do well? To be angry. Do you do well to be angry? And I wonder if this is a question we need to be asking ourselves more often. 
The, the thing about anger is that it's actually a surface emotion. It's not a root emotion. Most of the time when we experience what we would call angry, I, I, anger, I'm just angry, I'm so mad, I'm frustrated if you don't like that language. I'm not mad, I'm just frustrated. There's actually a deeper emotion behind it. You can imagine anger is like this shield that, that gets thrown up to protect us from an emotion that feels unbearable. Now, so many times we, we hold on to anger so long that it quits being a shield and it becomes armor. It becomes the very thing that protects us from what we perceive as the injustice of the world or the hurt of the world. But so often the anger that we feel, there's a deeper emotion. It's not just that I'm angry. I, I feel disrespected. I feel alone. I feel forgotten. I'm hurt. I'm betrayed. I'm lonely. I'm scared. I feel helpless. I feel worthless. And the easiest thing for me to do is to hold on to that anger, but the real problem is that, is that I feel alone and unloved, helpless, and wounded. And when we stay focused on the anger, we never actually get to the very thing that we're feeling, the real root of, what, of the emotion. This is different than God's righteous anger. When God talks about processing our anger, what he's talking about is deal with what's actually going on. But when he asks the question, do you do well to be angry, it also implies that there are times that it is well to be angry. And we see God, even in Jesus, getting angry. But what we see in righteous anger, the anger of God, is that the anger of God always moves towards sacrificial action. Let me say that again. Righteous anger... The anger of God always moves us towards sacrificial action. Anger can actually be a really good and powerful thing. It's not bad or evil in itself. Because it's anger that, that causes us to get up and do something. That, that, that stirs us up to create change, to bring about transformation in a way that may even cost us something. We get the word passion. And so often we think about passion as excitement or even giddiness. I'm passionate about that. I'm for it to the you know, hundredth degree. But the word passion actually comes from the root of suffering. And the question about passion is to say, what is it that you're willing to suffer for? And, and righteous anger is this thing that it stirs in me so badly. This wrong in, this wor in the world, this injustice, this vulnerability, the voiceless the oppressed, that I am moved, that even if it costs me something, I am willing to go to see change. Righteous anger in Jesus, when he looked at a people that did not respond to his word, in fact, in one place Jesus says that the Ninevites will rise up against this generation because at least when God showed up, they responded. But where did God, where did Jesus' righteous anger take him? To the cross. And, and in Jesus, it, it's not like there was the God of the Old Testament full of wrath and anger. I and mean, then finally Jesus shows up and we get the God of love and mercy. No, the God of love and mercy is the God of the Old Testament. And the wrath of God didn't go away. It's just that God didn't pour out his wrath on the people who deserved it, which is us. He poured out his wrath on himself, on Jesus on the cross. And what Jonah can't get is he likes God's grace and mercy when it's for his people. 
and on his terms. But how dare God be for those people over there? And I just wonder in the world that we live in. You know, we flew a lot just recently going back and forth to Israel and all. And uh, like global travel is just insane right now. We were talking to somebody and they said that, that typically in, in airlines, FAA, they record about uh, pre-2020 or whatever, there's about 15 incidents a year of somebody that causes a scene on a plane and they have to kick them off the plane or even divert the plane because of some scene, about 15 a year. That with 20, since 2020, they're now averaging about 50 a month of incidents, not necessarily always being diverted, but of somebody that has to, to be dealt with on a plane. And the phrase that's being used is this idea of collective trauma, that we all live as if we're in the belly of this whale, that it feels like our life is being squeezed, that everything feels dark and chaotic and scary. We've all been wounded in some way, disappointed and hurt and, and scared in some way. And, and it's easy to, to pour out our fear and our insecurity and our pain and let it bubble up as anger. But misdirected or undirected anger, not righteous anger, just the surface anger, because it's the easiest thing to feel. The shield that we hold up that has now become our armor, it becomes our safe place. And like Jonah, we find our perch outside of the city and wait for God's wrath to come on those people. God, when, when will you show up and deal with those people because they're the problem? My side, God, is obviously the righteous side. And it makes sense that you would have mercy and compassion on my side, but God, but not on the, that side. And God is calling us to move into a place that we are confronted with our own pain and our own suffering and our own fear and the places that we are hopelessly, apart from God, dependent upon his mercy and grace. To then be able to enter in with him into a place that we could walk into Nineveh and cry out, God, these people need you. And when people respond, even those that we would say are the farthest away or the most hopeless or the most evil, is our heart that they would turn to God? Or is our heart that they would burn in punishment? I'll say that again. Just right now. I mean, it's worthless. This is just an interesting theoretical exercise. But right now, think about it. What's the last thing that got you really mad? And what did you do with that anger? What's the group of people that you have the hardest time with? That it just stirs you up? That group, that party, that category, whatever they are. And it's our desire to see God move in a way that draws them to himself. Or is our heart to see them get what they deserve? As we would say, what they deserve. We certainly don't want to get what we deserve, but they need to get what they deserve. Amen? And so Jonah perches, sits upside on, on this hillside. But what's amazing is God's mercy to Jonah. I mean, it's amazing God's mercy for the Ninevites, but in the book of Jonah, what's really amazing is God's mercy for Jonah. So Jonah, angry at God, 
resentful at the people's response. Went out of the city and sat to the east and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Waiting for God's judgment. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. It's the same word as God appointing the, the whale or the great fish. And made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his own discomfort. And God's grace, he brings a shade of mercy over Jonah. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. He turns fast in this book. In fact, the language there of his exceeding anger is the exact same mirror of his exceeding gladness because of this little vine that's given him a little bit of shade in the sun. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed again. This is obviously like God is making this happen. A worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. A roller coaster of emotion for Jonah. We've all been there, though, right? And we're so angry, so mad, something. We wake up in the morning, we're like, You know what? Life's not that bad. Then we get in our car and somebody cuts us off. Like, are you kidding me? This world is a terrible place with terrible people. Except for me, I'm good. But the rest of the world. And God asks him this question again. Do you do well to be angry with this plant? Do you do well to be angry? Where is your anger coming from? Is it legitimate? What are you feeling, Jonah? What's going on here really, Jonah? And finally, Jonah is honest about his anger. Here's the thing. We don't necessarily like Jonah's response, but at least he's honest with God. And, and whatever is coming to mind as we're processing our own anger, the, the way that we're reacting to and against this world, the first thing that we need for, to find healing is to be honest with it. God, I am angry. This is what I'm feeling. This, this is wrong, or this feels wrong, or this isn't fair. This feels out of control. This is evil. I, I am angry, God. Yes. I do well to be angry. Dang it. That's not in there. I had that. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, and I love this. God, God takes this little bit of empathy that Jonah's showing, though it's for a, you know, a plant. You pity the, the plant for which you didn't even labor. You didn't make it grow. It came up in a night and died in a night. But Jonah, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. They're helpless apart from me. And also much cattle. Even the animals I care about are more valuable than this plant that you're so concerned about. And I just wonder how often we sit on our perch and observe the world and blast them with our pronouncements of judgment, our Facebook, Instagram perch. And God is just asking, what, what do you, do you do right to be angry? 
You're so upset about your discomfort, by your, the issues that seem to be causing you harm, but what about my people? All these people that you're getting angry and fired up about because their policies or their politics, because their stance and their decisions. You're so angry at this mass group of people that deserve the judgment of God, but don't you all? Don't we all? And God, my heart breaks. It's the question we have to ask as Jesus people is, does our heart break for the things that break God's heart? When we get all fired up at the world around us, an angry, hurting world. You know the thing about collective trauma? The sense that everyone is right there on edge is that we just need that much more grace for each other. Because if everyone has a, is about to go off at a moment's notice because of their own pain and their own fear, then we need to give a little bit of space. And the only way we find that space is that we're honest with God we let him speak into our pain, and then we root ourselves in his lavish mercy that we love because we have been loved. We forgive because we have been forgiven. We show mercy because we have been shown mercy. We bless those who curse because when we cursed, God chose to bless. And our response is not the response of this world because we have a God that came out of heaven to redeem us back to himself, that took the wrath we deserve and put it on a cross so that we could love the world the way that we were loved. So I want to pray for us. And as we respond to just what do you need to be honest with God about? How does Jonah mirror into our own heart and our own lives? Because the good news, this is, there is the good news. God doesn't want you bound by that anymore. He wants you to live free and whole. He wants you to be able to live and move in this world without being rocked by the turmoil and the pain. To feel deeply with compassion and empathy. To know what it means to hurt. To be righteously angered, but to, to stand up and move in compassionate, sacrificial action towards even those who have wounded us. We don't have to be like the rest of the world. We don't have to be like the rest of the world. The world needs this church, not Grace Monroe, but the church, the Jesus people, now more than it ever has. Because we have something different. Will you receive it? Let's pray. Lord, we need you. God, we know. We, we in so many ways, I, in so many ways, am Jonah. I want your punishment. I want your justice as I see fit. 
Lord, I pray, will you give us a heart of mercy and compassion? God, I pray even right now that in those places of anger, will you help us to see what's going on underneath the surface? That we could bring that to the cross. That you would meet us in that place and bring healing. May we receive your grace and your forgiveness. Wash us clean with your love. And Lord, help us to move forward, to be people of healing and reconciliation. And in your name we pray. Amen.